Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... His uh, performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of The 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for The 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Next time on Star Trek The Next Generation. Counselor Troy will have her baby in about 36 hours. News of an alien pregnancy alarms the crew. Something which I can only describe as a presence entered my body. But this mysterious entity pose a deadly threat. Destroy it now. Diana Muldor, Whoopi Goldberg, join the crew of Star Trek The Next Generation. This is Peter Holmstrom of the Trexperts Briefing Room. What you're about to listen to is a panel Lisa Klink and I conducted during the virtual TrekCon, where we talk about the original Phase 2 script for The Child, which would later become the Season 2 premiere of The Next Generation. A very special thank you to our guests Ben Robinson and Jonathan Wilkins for joining us on a really fascinating conversation, as well as everyone at the virtual TrekCon for putting the event together, namely Anne-Marie Siegel, Ryan T. Huss for coordinating the Zoom and scheduling, as well as everyone at the 7th Rule podcast, including Jake Sisko himself, Siroc Lofton, and the late, great Aaron Eisenberg. You can check out the Virtual Trek Con at virtualtrekcon.com, as well as Virtual Trek Con on YouTube, where you can also find the video of this episode if you're interested in seeing our beautiful faces. Also wanted to thank our own team, sound engineer Mark Rivera, producer Natalie Miscali, executive producers Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin, as well as everyone else at Electric Entertainment. We want to give a special shout out here to Mr. James Sparrow. He's a, a good friend of the show, fan for a long time, and offered to help us uh, get a hold of some of this research material on phase two. Um, really went above and beyond to uh, take time out of his day to, to help uh, get the information together. So wanted to say thank you very much to James. While this episode can be viewed as a commentary track for the child, it is primarily an open conversation comparing and contrasting the script for the original with the final product of The Next Generation. So please enjoy this really interesting episode of the Trexperts Briefing Room. And if you like our show, please subscribe, rate us five stars, and throw a positive comment our way. Really, really do appreciate it. Enjoy the show.
Welcome back to the Trexperts Briefing Room, where industry professionals curate audio commentaries with the creators, creatives, and diehard fans of the Star Trek franchise. This is Peter Elmstrom. I'm a screenwriter of a sci-fi television show, Pandora, as well as the author of The Center Seats, 55 Years of Star Trek, the companion book to the hit documentary series by the Cell Company, in stores right now. And I'm Lisa Klink. I was a writer on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and Voyager, and I have a short story out in the first issue of Star Trek Explorer magazine. Today, we are coming to you live from Virtual TrekCon and an in-depth conversation about the season two premiere of The Next Generation, The Child, and more specifically, its origins as a script for the unproduced Star Trek television series from the 70s, Star Trek Phase Two. Yes, the script originally starred Kirk, Zahn, and McCoy, and we'll be discussing a bit of the history of Phase Two and comparing and contrasting the Phase Two script with the finished TNG product. Joining us here on this voyage uh, are currently one of our favorite guests, but hopefully another guest will be joining us shortly. Uh, he runs the Evil Moss Star Trek collection, which produces some of the best Starship finishers out there, as well as a nonfiction writer and co-wrote the books on Star Trek Voyager, A Celebration, and recently released Star Trek, the original series, The Celebration. Ben Robinson, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. As we wait for our next guest, I thought we'd take a minute here um, for both you know, Ben, um, Lisa. I think like all of us, we first experienced Star Trek in such an interesting way. We did it um, on television, uh, often in syndication, um, where you could exist and you could watch these things in kind of a um, a bubble, right? In the pre-Twitter, pre-internet days. It seems like now you can't enter anything without hearing something about it. But for me, I know I watched The Child from the Next Generation for the first time, and it was just part of the pantheon of Star Trek. I wonder if you guys could think back and think about what was your first reaction to the show um, when you were watching it um, for the first time. Well, I'm sure that I was watching it in the uh, commons room of my dorm um, at Duke University. Uh, we would always get together. Everybody in the dorm would get together for Next Generation. So I'm sure that was my first experience of watching The Child. For me, it would have been on VHS. Being English, we had to uh, wait for the VHS release, which came... I think six months after broadcast, something like that. Um, so you'd get two episodes on a on a tape. God, this is so twentieth century. <laughs> um, and yeah, and but then of course you would at least be able to go and watch it straight away again afterwards if it was good, or maybe a little later if it wasn't so good. <laughs> we we've heard uh, tell that the the British censors cut out quite a number of things from the. Uh, <laughs> Oh, not that many. There's a reference to the unification of Ireland. That was, oh, no, we can't have that. That went. Um, There is um, some of the stuff from Conspiracy. They showed it once, and then they went, oh, God, that's scary. We better not say that again. Um, So that was all the... um, the Remick blowing up stuff. What else did they censor? My favorite VHS thing was that they... um, they, the the cover for uh, one of the stories had a picture of the Dalai Lama on, yeah. and you're like looking at it, going, "What? Does, who who are these aliens in this episode?" And then when you realised it was just that the Dalai Lama had visited the set, and they picked the pictures up and used it without had no connection to the episode whatsoever. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. It's so funny when you think back to about how many famous people came to visit the set of Star Trek. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan, Colin Powell, you know, uh, Stephen Hawking. I mean, these were people who just, uh, you know, Star Trek was quite a phenomenon for a time. Um, but it is really interesting when you think back to season two about how the show was still finding itself and it's it's coming out right after uh, or in the midst of a, a WGA strike. So there was this kind of pressure on them to both create, but also to cement themselves as, as, as premier science fiction property. And obviously Paramount had given them kind of a soft green light for two seasons. So this was also the time of being like, all right, we still, we still have to earn a third season here. Um, so they go into the vaults to, to, for the season two premiere and find the script for uh, phase two, the child have decided to do a big adaptation of it. You know, Ben, I mean, I would love to, to talk a little bit about the history of phase two. I think it's a, a chapter of uh, Star Trek that gets um, a little forgotten in a way, um, obviously because it never got produced. But, uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, we're talking here about the mid-1970s. Star Trek, the original series, had been canceled in 1969 due to lackluster ratings, let's say, and a a rather high budget, um, which both NBC and Paramount just couldn't really continue to justify. Um, But then, uh, within a few years, they both realized that Star Trek is uh, a literal 
bank or a, a mint that's of printing money, you know, I wonder, and they wanted to bring it back. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just how really rare that was this notion of like, let's bring back a television show and, and kind of that internal justification for doing so. Yeah, I don't think it happened at all. I, I can't think of anything that had come back before then. Um, I guess there's like Return of the Saint around about the same time. Um, <laughs> That's true. So yeah, but that that was like a a, a second generation, I guess, new cast. Um, I mean, what happened, as I understand it, is you know Star Trek goes into syndication and it's getting these really really good ratings for syndication. And then way back when, even then, there's talk of starting a fourth network. Um, and the idea is they wanted this anchor show for the for the network and Star Trek. There was demand for more, um, so they got Gene to come back. Uh, he assembled a staff, um, and they got most, but not all, of the cast. So Leonard, um, Leonard at the time, this is Leonard Nimoy. Obviously, everybody said, "Oh, he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it." I talked to him, and he said, "Well, they didn't offer me enough money." Um, <laughs> he didn't quite put it that way. He said they didn't give me everything that I wanted. They wouldn't give me what I wanted. So uh, the show would have had a, a different Vulcan, this character Zon, who I, I still think David Gautreaux, who was cast in the role, is the perfect guest star for any series of Star Trek. I don't understand why it hasn't happened. Um, Decker, who Stephen Collins had not been cast. So there was, you know, the character existed. And Decker is quite like Riker. Um, he's meant to be this kind of um, captain in training, but obviously his relationship is with Kurt rather than with Picard. Um, and then Ilea, uh, they had cast Persis Kambata. Um, and she, the Deltans, we never really got to see enough of, but they were meant to be like the emotional equivalent of the Vulcans. So they were like the, the, the other end of the spectrum from the Vulcans and meant to be so kind of uh, emotionally sophisticated and... Uh, and Gene being Gene, sexually sophisticated as well. Um, we'll, we'll talk about Alia a little <laughs> yeah, bit uh, in absolutely. the script, because this is like her feature script. Is it? Yeah. And if a lot of these names sound familiar to the listeners out there, these the, the work done on Phase 2 gradually transitioned over to the motion picture. Um, the notion was, I mean, a number of things happened, but one of them being that Star Wars came out and Paramount suddenly realized that there was a lot of money to make in in um, in science fiction on, on cinema, but also the plans for a fourth network kind of went away. So there was uh, a thought that like, okay, we can still do this, but let's do a motion picture first to kick things off and then we'll transition into uh, phase two as an ongoing television show. Steven, in that time, the notion of sequels um, was rare, right? So like the, uh, so it, it work on phase two continued even as the motion picture was, was getting prepared. Yeah, I mean, they'd done quite a lot of work for it. So they built sets, which then got upgraded for motion picture. Um, they actually built a, a different version of the Enterprise. So uh, Matt Jeffries came back and did some upgrades and Brick Price had built a model, um, which got upgraded again for motion picture. But there's, yeah, there's some test footage out there. Um, and they commissioned, you know, they had 13 stories and gone into serious development. Um, and I can't remember how many scripts there actually are, something like nine, I think, actual scripts. About nine or 10, yeah. Yeah, and and, and then I, I've seen, I've got pitches for some stories that they hadn't bought that, you know, they were still working on. So it was it was pretty full on. I mean, in, in some ways, it was in better shape than TNG was halfway through the first season. You know, it was... Uh, it's quite tight. It's 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 an interesting interesting missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, and and a lot of as I said, a lot of the names do carry over. Harold uh, Livingston was on as kind of the creative producer. What what today we would call a showrunner, um, a writing showrunner. Um, you know, Gene Roddenberry was there as kind of the overseeing executive producer. Uh, John Povel, who wrote this script, uh, was also uh, worked on the um, on the motion picture, and and erroneously came up with the uh, the at least claims that the story goes that he came up with a solution for the motion picture of uh, Decker needs to join with the creator when he was uh, hanging out on set and extremely high. But, um, <laughs> I, but, was, uh, um, I was reading through some notes before we did this and apparently the original uh, way to get rid of Vija was that Kirk drew a picture of a droopy daisy. <laughs> and uh, he was like, look, it's terrible, but it's still art. And that kind of Vija went, oh, okay, yeah. 
that's the nature of creativity. So they never really liked that ending, which is why John spent so much time trying to come up with something else. That's amazing. Um, Lisa, I mean, uh, chime in here. When, do you recall when you first heard of um, Phase 2? Like, it is kind of a weird chapter of Star Trek history. Was it something that was ever talked about in the Voyager writer's room? Or Well, that, that is where I first heard about it, was when I was yeah. on Voyager. But it was this, like, apocryphal thing. I wasn't sure that it even had, had really existed or if it was something that maybe the fans had made up. Um, so I really didn't know too much about it, uh, but I knew that it had some connection to uh, to Star Trek the motion picture, some of the characters, you know, bleeding over and that sort of thing. So I think that's why I thought that maybe it was not a real project in its own. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, little tidbits that I learned um, because of the Inglorious Trek Sports podcast, which is our, our uh, sister show, um, is that they had done like a series of newspaper uh, strip stories for Star Trek based off Star Trek motion picture for a few years. And they're, they're fantastic. Like anyone should go uh, buy them. There's uh, two great hardcover editions of them out there right now. But for like the first five or six um, stories, like Ilea and Decker are still there on the bridge in the background because they still hadn't, you know, at the time of the publication, like nobody knew how the movie was going to end. And so they were like, yeah, sure. They're part of the, the cast now going forward, obviously like, put them on the enterprise and, um, and then mysteriously, they just vanish because the motion picture and, and Star Trek as a whole at the time was just such in a, a state of like flux and things were constantly changing. Right. So, Ben, you said that you had some of the original pitches. Yeah. How did you get hold of that? Um, Paramount or CBS requested them for another project. Um, and I can't remember why I was talking to them about doing something with it. I've, I've always had this kind of secret yearning to um, get these, these stories made. Um, I'd, I would love for someone to do them as audio dramas. You can just mm-hmm. imagine, because there are scripts. I mean, these are Gene Roddenberry scripts. Right. You know, these are like uh, first, second draft scripts that are fully approved by Gene. Um, a lot of the cast, you could easily see who you could replace. I mean, Shatner could still come out and be Kirk. Nobody better to be Kirk, however much there are new people doing it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm sure sure we could get Ethan Peck to come along. And oh, Actually, no, we need Zon. We could get David Gautreau to be Zon. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're there to be done. I, I think that's why I got them. I can't remember now. I've always been, I've just been fascinated by it because, I mean, I just love stuff that, isn't quite what happened, you know, yeah. road not taken, parallel universes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know what I find so fascinating reading through this script and reading through um, um, some other scripts and also listeners out there, if you'd like to um, learn more about phase two, this script, as well as the pilot script for Endi Image is in, uh, was published in a great book called Star Trek. Uh, I'm holding up the book right now for, oh, it's not coming in through my background, but <laughs> um, never mind. Uh, uh, it's called Star Trek Phase Two: uh, The Lost Series. It's written by uh, Judith and uh, Garfield Reeve Stevens, who also uh, wrote on uh, Enterprise. And it's a really great book, um, very uh, uh, full of just fascinating behind-the-scenes images. Um, and it publishes the scripts for both the pilot in the image and then um, the script for this uh, book or uh, this episode we're here to talk about today. Um, but Ben, you obviously have read more material. It's interesting for me reading through a lot of the. Um, a lot of the the scripts and material for uh, phase two, the sort of tonal differences between it and and the original series. Um, to 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 hit the nail on the head, uh, Ben, I'll ask you this though, because like re- reading through this stuff, it, it you know to to be blunt about it, Kirk's not that sexy in this series. <laughs> they were, you know what? The, one of the reasons that Decker exists is because they were worried that at 40, 40, Kirk would be too old to play the leading man. (laughs) And tonally, it does sort of, it's more reminiscent of the motion picture, right? There's these weird kind of splashes of sexuality in them, but then they pull back instantly and it's back to just kind of military talk, right? And like Ilea here in this script, we'll, we'll talk about it as we get into it, but there's these like, it's just, it's a little, tonally, it's a little funky. It feels, it feels much more like there's a 70s influence of kind of like the neo-noir, almost nihilism of everything. Like, we're just here to talk about our military aspects. And then there's just these like splashes of like one character who's like, you know, dancing yeah, I, in the, in the I, corridors or something. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, I think it's, you know, you have to remember that this one in particular, this is a, a first draft or a mm-hmm. second draft, I think. Actually, um, so you know, I think when they'd got going a little bit, then maybe they would have had a bit more of a sense of the tone. I mean, the the thing I would 
level at them, a criticism I would level at them, is kind of the same as the first season of TNG, where they're like retreading ideas from the original series. Yeah. So there's there's a character who's very like Trelane. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, you know, there are storylines that kind of like just feel a bit too familiar in some of yeah. the scripts. But yeah. then there are also, I mean, the, the, the standout story uh, is a two-part um, story called Kitumba, mm-hmm. which is uh, John Meredith Lucas's kind of um, Star Trek meets Shogun um, storyline where they, they have to go into the, they go deep undercover in the Klingon Empire to try and um, protect this child emperor who has ascended to the throne. And all these warlords are trying to sort of um, manipulate things and take over. Yeah. So, but yeah, they're very different to one another, the scripts, I think. I think, yeah. you know, you, they, there's no kind of uh, clarity about what the show is at this point. Yeah, I mean, Kutumba is fantastic, too. It's also a complete reinvention of what the Klingons are. Like, we read yeah. it today and we're like, oh, half their race are just, like, techno-cybernetic, you know? But Because um, at that point, we remember that, like, Star Trek hadn't been as defined as um, as it is today. And and reading through this script, I don't think we'll, there'll be any moments of that during our readings, but... Um, uh, there's plenty of instances where they're referring to, you know, variations of warp speed as we would think of it as being variations of impulse drive, but they're just throwing in like warp speed five and all, the, all this stuff as if, because the terms just weren't really defined yet, you know, and it's something they're still very much working on. But um, Jonathan, can, can, can we hear you? Can you speak? Nope. Apparently not. Okay. I can hear you. Can you hear oh, me? Oh, there we go. Is that better now? We can hear you. Uh, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's like literally back to dial up here. How is everyone? Are you okay? Doing very well. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, for our me. listeners for our listeners out there, uh, Jonathan is um, the fiction editor for Star Trek Explorer magazine, um, which is a fantastic publication through Titan Publishing. And um, he's also an a editor at large over there at Titan and uh, also just a, a fantastic human being. Uh, yes. yes. Just thank so, goodness I don't work in IT, is all I'll say. <laughs> um, Jonathan, we had, we had talked a bit about um, the child and as well as uh, phase two in its history, but um, just to play catch up here a little bit, do you recall seeing the, uh, the TNG um, episode of The Child when it first came out and like what your initial reactions to it were? Yeah, my initial reaction was, what a weird way to start a season of TV, um, especially Star Trek. It's such a, it, it's such a strange um, setup. It feels like such a mid-season episode that it, it was. I couldn't quite believe. I thought, you know, watching it on the initial UK run, I thought, oh, they, they've there's another episode that we're not allowed to see over here. Obviously, there was a real barnstorming, slightly controversial season opener. That um, yeah didn't make it over here, but no, it, it, it's a very odd uh, episode. It's nice to see Marina Sirtis given a storyline, uh, you know, a bit, especially like we've all read that she was pretty sure she was going to be fired <laughs> at yep. the end of the season <laughs> before. Um, but um, it's it's kind of a shame that it's never mentioned again. It, it's an episode that happens and then everyone moves on. I guess that's the nature of. TV at that point, but it, it feels like something like that would have had uh, far-reaching consequences for her as a character. But also, of course, with Marie Desertis, um I cannot... Ha- I mean, I think she's a phenomenal actress because it was only years and years later I heard her talking in her London accent. Um, <laughs> and, with, and whenever I watch it, I really watch any Star Trek now with her in it I really wish there was a version where we could hear her talking in her regular voice <laughs> um, it would be very unusual for Trek <laughs> it's, it's it's a fantastic accent I'm, I'm never quite sure why they why they wanted it to be changed it's because it, it's also like what is the accent any anyway, I'm not entirely sure it's it's kind of British by way of Spain. Obviously. Uh, North, uh, of London course, Greek. Of North London Greek that's what Maria yeah. is so I'll tell you <laughs> um but yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, uh, transition point to talk a bit about um, kind of what the broad strokes differences are between um, the Phase Two script and the Chi and G episode. Um, for listeners out there, we're going to do a little bit of uh, scene readings here in a moment, where we'll talk more about specifics of, of the episode. But um, broad strokes in the TNG episode, 
the case of the week aspect is that there is this virus on this planet and the crew of the Enterprise have to transport this big crate of, of you know, genetic material to this other planet so that a vaccine can be made, right? I kind of thought of it a bit as like, oh, it's it's like a smallpox, one of these kind of, uh, uh, you know, you hear about like the Soviet or even American, you know, the CDC labs and then and they have to take one of these very dangerous materials and transport it over here. Um, elsewhere on the Enterprise, uh, an alien entity has impregnated Deanna Troy and an accelerated pregnancy and growing period means that this male boy goes from uh, inception to teenager in, in less than a few days. Um, eventually, this this big crate of dangerous tech, tech, tech uh, begins to degrade <laughs> and the whole ship is threatened. The boy, Ian, claims that this is his fault and he leaves and heartache ensues from there. Um, in the phase two script, it's a, it's a similar setup, but the major difference is each act involves a number of kind of mini catastrophes that threaten the enterprise. And the, 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 the child in this, in this story, whose name is Erska, um, the daughter of Ilya, um, is the only one who can solve the problems. The mystery and the engine of the episode is uh, less about like, what is this child? And more about like the incidental problems that we know are never really going to damage anyone anyway, but uh, are nevertheless there for this one child to solve. You know, I mean, for for everyone here, Jonathan, Ben, Lisa, I mean, was there anything broad strokes when you reviewed the script that struck you as like, wow, this is actually super different than, than the finished episode. I don't know if it was super different, but something that really struck me was that in the uh, phase two version, we really got to see um, Ilea as, as a mother in a somewhat different way than, than your average human. And yeah. so we got to learn a little bit more about the Delton's race. Whereas in the next generation version, Troy was basically a human mother. We, ne- we yeah. didn't really get to see what, you know, what a Betazoid, you know, or Beta Z mother would be like. I mean, if you think about her own mother, you know, Loxana, you can't imagine her being like the average, you know, suburban mom, um, but it seemed like Deanna sort of was. So I thought that that was a, a missed opportunity to see a little bit more about her culture. That's very true. It's very true. I mean, for me, the big thing is structural, that mm-hmm. um, it's a, the original script is much more focused. It, it's, you know, it's got this central thing of Erska is there. There's this um, bizarre cylindrical ship that's following the Enterprise and seems to be the thing that's posing all these dangers. And it's much more focused on that kind of uh, jeopardy and, and the central mystery of who is Erska. Whereas the TNG episode has got all these different things it's got to accomplish. So it's like, oh, okay, here is... Um, Introducing Dr. Pulaski. Oh, and Guyman. Yeah. Yes. And the new carpet. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's, it just feels like, and I think it's something that happens in season two of TNG quite a bit, is that you get these kind of runner stories that just don't really contribute to the main story at all. You know, they're quite soft and fluffy and and soap opera. I mean, I love a bit of soap opera in my science fiction, but this is a bit kind of like it's just it doesn't all come together. It's not really tied together. There's a whole thing. Oh, the other thing is, you know, the guidance storyline is Wesley's deciding whether to stay on the ship now that his mother has left, or everyone assumes he's gonna leave and ultimately he decides he wants to stay. Yeah. But it just it I don't know, it just didn't feel very um coherent. You know, it's not all going to the same goal. Whereas the original script, I think, is is it's much more focused, much cleaner. Interesting, interesting. Um, I think it's I think it's a kind of shame as well. Um, reading the original script, I, I'm going to put my cards on the table here. I find the Deltons very, very interesting, and there was never seemed to be much of an exploration beyond the motion picture of of you know what you know that whole thing I've taken an oath of celibacy it's such a Gene Rottenberry thing it's such a Gene, <laughs> oh, Gene and his <laughs> oath of celibacy I don't yeah. think so uh, well, well no but uh, the idea of there is a, a species so sexually advanced that if they go near a human that people will melt you know it, yes um, um, and I think it's 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 kind of strange I've, I've always wondered why they kind of steered away from, I kind of know why they steered away from that because it's a PG rated franchise but um it, it would. I think it bears more exploration. Put it that way. 
it is it is heartbreaking from from just watching the motion picture, just just knowing that Decker is is madly in love with Ilya. And Ilya even kind of loves him too. You get that sense a little bit, but like she just knows that like this will kill us both. And there's that kind of forbidden love yeah. aspect, which is really cool. Which you could say like that they tried to recreate that with Riker and Troy, which is something that that we actually I found we kind of miss in the phase two scripts is that like Decker is almost not there. Like he's he's there, but he's kind of not there at all. And yet in the next generation finished episode, Riker, you feel Riker's like like jealousy, but also kind of like protective aspect. Like the, he's he's clearly struggling with his own emotions in that episode. Well, the the Decker Ilya romance only got introduced when it became motion picture. Mm-hmm. So it's not part of the original Bible for the series. Um, she's just an exotic alien. Um, a bald exotic alien with a headdress. Um, <laughs> so gorgeous. How do you define exotic, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> There's a story. I don't know if I can tell the story about Alf Bennett going in and uh, and talking about when he when they asked him to do Star Trek Two, and he was like, "Did you see Star Trek the Motion Picture?" It's like, um, yeah. He didn't know what to say. This is Charlie Bloodhorn and Michael Eisner and um, those kind of people in the room, and he's like, he doesn't know what what he's supposed to say. And they say, uh, what did you think of it? And he goes, well, I thought it was kind of boring. And Bloodhorn turned to Eisner and said, see, by you bald, it's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, let's get it right on in here to this uh, to this script and do, do a quick scene reading. Um, so uh, for listeners out there, we're going to be reading the teaser. Ben, if you could do the role of uh, Bernstein and uh, as well as what we talked about the other day. Um, I'll be reading through the scene description. Um, Lisa, if you could do uh, Inson Park and um, Ilea. And then uh, Jonathan, if you could read the role of uh, Lieutenant Zong. Okay. Fade in. Exterior enterprise. Traveling through space. Interior bridge. Wide angle. It's the manner of a... It's manned by a relief crew. Zahn in the command chair is the only familiar face. The atmosphere is relaxed, routine, almost bored. Then something makes Ensign Bernstein at the helm perk up a bit. Something on the forward view, Mr. Zahn. Looks like a nebula. Slow to warp factor one, Mr. Bernstein. Sensor scan, Ensign Park. Ensign Park, an attractive and efficient junior science officer, pushes a sequence of buttons in front of her and consults the hooded viewer of, for the results of the scan. Not a nebula, sir. I'm picking up several kinds of energy. Radiation readings I've never seen before. Put it on the viewer, Mr. Bernstein. Bernstein hits some buttons. Then, angle viewer, as the swirling gaseous mass appears there. It has pulsing points of light within it that move almost like fish darting through water. Angle Bernstein. We're heading right for it, Mr. Zon. Angle Zon, as he approaches Ensign Park at the science console. No visible danger, sir. Radiation and electromagnetic readings all within our tolerance limit. She steps out of the way and Zahn looks into the hooded viewer briefly. You're quite correct, Edson. Force fills to manual. 0.85 deflection aspect. Take us through at warp one, Mr. Bernstein. We'll survey and map it. Exterior space as the Enterprise sails through the clouds of pulsing, swimming lights. Interior bridge, all is normal. Cartography computer on and recording. Exterior space. As the Enterprise makes its way through the cloud, large pulses of white light glide past. Now one of them seems to change direction and f- follow along the ship for a while. Then a small section of the light break, light ball breaks off as it begins traversing the outer skin of the ship. Abruptly, it disappears into the Enterprise. Interior, deck 17, crew, crew quarters. As the light entity enters the empty corridor and passes through the wall into interior, Uhura's quarters. The light entity makes its way to the sleeping Uhura. It quickly scans the length of her body, then makes another pass, pausing first at her abdomen and then at her head. Uhura continues to sleep, but she stretches languorously as as though the touch of the light on her body is sensual and pleasant. Then the light entity moves on, pa- passing through the, the another wall into interior Chekhov's quarters. Again, the light entity heads directly to the room's sleeping occupant and quickly scans over his body, making Another closer pass, Chekhov also appears to enjoy the experience in the sleep as the entity surveys his abdomen. It does not explore his head and moves out again through the, another wall into interior Ilea's quarters. The same procedure occurs, only this, in, this time the entity seems to linger for a long time over Ilea's head. She too clearly enjoys the experience. The entity pulls away for a moment and hovers in the air over her. Over her. 
growing brighter and more animated. Then it plunges into her abdominal wall. Her body moves spasmatically, sexually, as she doesn't, but she doesn't wake up. Her writhing continues until it reaches a peak during which her entire body seems to glow. Then the glow appears to gather itself at her head. Her body relaxes again. The glow becomes the light entity, which removes itself and goes through yet another wall into exterior enterprise, still with the cloud, as the light entity from the hull of the ship and rejoins the large ball that uh, has passed the ship. Um, interior corridor, deck five, it's now brightly lit and abuzz with activity. Kirk strives cheerfully through in a swimsuit, a towel around his neck, hair dripping wet as Chekhov emerges from his quarters. Oh, I forgot about Chekhov. Um, I'll read Chekhov. <laughs> Uh, nothing like a brisk swim in the in, in swim in the ocean, eh, Captain? After they pass Ilya's compartment, the camera holds on Ilya's door as she emerges somewhat dreamily into in a flowing Delton robe. Camera tucks with a camera trucks with Ilya as she makes her way to, to the turbo lift, exchanging dreamy ad libs greetings with those who pass her. She enters the turbo lift interior corridor as Ilya proceeds to sick bay and enters interior sick bay. Uh, ben, if you could play the role of McCoy, that'd be great. Um, interior sickbay. McCoy is there, just settling into the daily routine. He greets her warmly. Good morning, Good morning. Lieutenant. If you can call turning the lights up at 0800 hours morning. <laughs> Angle Ilea. She's extremely puzzled, dazed. I don't understand it. I, I have not broken my vow, yet I can feel it inside me. McCoy is worried now. He realizes something is wrong. What, Lieutenant? What do you feel inside you? Confused, groping for an explanation, she touches her fingers to the side of her head, somewhere above and behind the temples, and closes her eyes in meditation. Last night, a, a pure white light. I don't know how beautiful. She hesitates, uncertain, confused. Ilea, please, try to make sense. I'm pregnant, doctor. Fade out, end of teaser. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> okay, uh... Lisa, you've, you're our, our resident expert Star Trek writer here, even <laughs> in your life. Um, how, how does this stack up for you? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, cre it creates a, you know, a, a tech mystery. You know, what is this thing and what is it doing? Um, I mean, it's, it directs a lot in the script, you know, what the actor is supposed to do exactly and what they're feeling. But again, that's part of kind of what the effect that this, this light being has. So, I, I don't know. I thought it was, you know, sort of your average teaser, just setting up the mystery. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things is like there's so many um, auxiliary cast involved. Like I just, I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just the modern sensibilities of like we can't afford extras. Oh, I hate it. But, <laughs> um, but uh, I was just like, my God, there's so many other people here that. Um, and you know, Ben, having having read the other scripts have, have for Phase Two, do you notice there was a, a conscious effort to maybe expand the world of the Enterprise beyond just the core seven people? I, th I think the biggest thing actually is that the whole the, it, it's more of an ensemble show. So you'll get like uh, a Scotty show, um, you get an Ilea show, a Decker show, a Zon show, you know, and the original series, I mean, I remember watching TNG and it's like, well, the original series was really just these three guys or two and a half guys, you know. Um, and, and this is already moving into, the, into a different kind of space. I mean, I, I'm not sure whether all the kind of like the Bernsteins and the whoever would have become the kind of uh, equivalent to um, Sula or Chekhov, you know, they were just like the extras who were always there. I think probably each writer was just making up their supporting cast for their episode. Um, and things like just the fact that there is like a relief crew, you know, that's like, okay, and, and you could say, why, why do we need it to be this way around? Why don't we just have everybody in their normal stations? Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's definitely kind of some way towards TNG, I would say. Um, it's, it's different. It's not the original series. Absolutely. And Jonathan, if, if you were reviewing this as a first few pages of a short story for, for your Star Trek Explorer magazine, pick it up now in source. Um, uh, <laughs> how would this stack up? Would you, would you be like, keep reading or would you just whoosh, over <laughs> on to the next story? <laughs> uh oh, it sounds like the audio might be gone again from Jonathan. Oh, oh, no, no, there no, you that's go. That's okay. Um, I was, I was just, um, Oh, I throw it straight in the bin. No, um, it's great. It's um, I. Do you know what? It's an intriguing teaser. Um, 
I think the thing with it is, is that you've got one of the main characters pregnant and you know that that can't stand, you know, that that's not going to be an ongoing thing in the show because that would, I guess, compromise that character or it would have done then, you know, in an adventure series then if it was in a, maybe a modern day series, then that would be allowed to, to carry on and develop over the course of a season. So... um you you kind of wonder how that is going to play out, which is, which is intriguing, I think. Um, but uh, yeah. I'm, quite, I'm, I'm quite curious about the character of Zon, even though I played him so terribly in that uh, <laughs> you've seen. Um, it, uh, it, it's um, yeah, it's it's a tough act to follow. Spock is you know even at that point with you know just three series of television, um, he was you know an iconic character. So um, I, I'm really intrigued as to how that would have played out or how that character would have gone down had, had the show gone ahead. Zon's fascinating. So Zon is like um, prototype data. So Zon is a full Vulcan who has decided that if he's going to serve with these humans, he has to try and experience emotion. So he's like the, the reverse of Spock, trying to suppress his emotions. So there's actually literally a scene like the one at the beginning of Schizoid Man when Data is practicing laughing. Um, in which Zon is doing exactly the same thing. Um, he's a, and David Goucher had this fantastic thing. He said that his acting teacher gave him this note, was like saying, imagine that you are, you're trying to just move the needle into a different groove on a record every time you're talking to the other people that they just don't get it. Um, I, I think Zon is, yeah, I mean, Zon's, Zon's a potentially really interesting. I guess so much just depended on how good David Goucher would have been. You know, I mean... Leonard Nimoy is a, a massively hard act to follow. It is, but you do look at that test footage that's out there, and you're like, you know, this this could have worked really well. I mean, it was definitely a bit more of a, a Vulcan, uh, you know, in a way you could see it kind of being a big hit with the fans. You know, the the, the Vulcan with ruffled hair and a little more <laughs> Michael York <laughs> Vulcans. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, um, you know, let's, let's jump right into this next scene here then. Um, cause I see we're, uh, starting to run a bit short on time, but, uh, let's go right for this. It's the beginning of act two. Um, we are on to page 13. Um, we've set up a bit of the, uh, struggle of the episode. There's a silver cylinder that's out there. Ilea has now given birth to a daughter named Erska and Erska is also now talking um, so we open right here with Act Two. Uh, ben, if you could go on playing uh, Kirk, um, I'll be the role of Erska, um, and I think uh, that's the ones we need to worry about. Um, all right, exterior space, Enterprise, and alien cylinder. Captain's log, stardate something or other. A week has passed since the birth of Ilya's child and the appearance of the strange alien cylinder. Despite an ever-increasing white blood cell count, Erska remains healthy. Her stage of development is roughly that of a 10-year-old child. We remain unable to make contact with the alien cylinder or to determine why, or indeed how, it is following us. Interior, Ilya's quarters. Without the occasional familiar piece of hardware, the viewer, the viewer computer library console, the intercom, the doors, etc., it would be most difficult to determine that this room was on board the Starship Enterprise. It delights in this, it delights the senses. It is filled with exotic plants, cushions on the floor, walls covered in the soft textured material, deep, richly saturated colors, smoke rising from an incest, in, incense burner. Uh, oh boy. 1975. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, various angles, Ilea and Erska. There's music playing, something like modern jazz, but played on totally alien sounding instruments. It must be something danceable, though, as mother and child are dancing, sensual and innocent, joyous. Movements perhaps related to Tai Chi. They whirl, they whirl about. Di, diphan, diaphanous? Diaphanous. Diaphanous, excuse me, diaphanous. Uh, I'm a writer. I know how to I, I can spell the words. <laughs> um, diaphanous flowing robes billowing. Um, ending in a crescendo of laughing and waving arms and the fingertips that occasionally brush each other's bodies as lightly as hair blowing in the wind. The music stops and they fall onto, cush onto, the floor, onto floor cushions, breathless. They recline, catching their breath until Ilea grows serious and turns to her daughter. Today I resume my duties. That means we'll be apart for a time. Can I go to work with you? 
I'm not going to use that voice again. <laughs> um, Ilea reaches out and uh, caresses the child's the child's face, hair. No, my work is my work. It is important that you spend some time alone now and become who you are to be. Erska looks uncertain and somewhat frightened. Ilea soothes her now with both hands. But what will I do? Learn. Do whatever you want to do. See if you can discover joyfulness alone. Once you have achieved that, you need never fear rejection. Ilea embraces the child lovingly. Erska returns the warmth. They look at each other for a long moment. As Are they communicating telepathically or is it love? Uh, we do not know. Interior, Kirk's quarters. Ilea in uniform enters. Kirk, reading, looks at her, smiles. I would like permission to resume my duties, Captain. Kirk isn't sure. He wasn't expecting this. What about your daughter? She's busy, learning to have a good relationship. Who with? Herself, sir. The beginning of all good relationships. One must spend time alone to get to know oneself before being ready to share who you are with others. Elia, what are your plans for you and your daughter? Plans, Captain? I have none. She is growing fast and will not be with me long. I must love her, teach her what I can, and then let her go. Go where? To do what? Appearance is the country. She's not human, nor is she Delton, or any other life form we know of. Will she be able to adjust to that aloneness? Captain, she is my child. Even if we are physically separated, the bond between us is inseparable. You are more alone at any time than ever, than she is ever capable of feeling. Where she goes and what she does must be left up to her. What if she were to pose some danger to... She does not. She could not pose danger to anyone. Kirk sees no point in trying to pursue the subject, though he remains less than fully convinced of her statement. Have you any idea at all in, in what way your daughter might be connected with that cylinder out there? No, Captain. I'm sorry, but I do not. Very well, Lieutenant. Thank you. You may return to your duties. Thank you, sir. And scene. Well done. That was really good. Um, it's. Uh, I definitely want to make sure we get through the last scenes. Maybe we just jump into that one and then talk about both scenes um, afterwards as we start to wrap up. Because I know we have a hard out here that we have to hit. Um, so the next scene we're going to talk about is... Uh, Act four, um, we're in the days of the four-act television structure, which is so lovely. <laughs> um, and we're on page 41, uh, scene 38. And we will just go right through there to the end of the episode. Okay. Um, so for now, for the listeners out there, uh, a lot of those kind of incidental problems I was talking about have come up, um, and Erska has been the one to solve them. One was a, a radiation surge throughout the entire uh, crew of the Enterprise, and and uh, Erska, Erska's blood had the um, vaccine, shall we say, for, for the radiation poisoning. Um, another one was that there was a, a, a problem on the... Um, in the engine system, kind of reminiscent of Spock in, in Star Trek II. Um, Erska was the only one who was resistant to the radiation and could go in and, and fix the problem. She's very um, handy with a welding torch. <laughs> the small <laughs> hands, they're, uh, they're great with that. <laughs> um, all right, so we're just going to hop right on into this here. Um, I'm sorry, okay. which scene was it? I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, page 41, we're on uh, scene 138. Okay. Interior, Ilea's quarters. Erska kneels before her unconscious mother. She takes Ilea's hand in hers and gently strokes it while watching her face intently. Ilea comes to and, and looks up at her daughter. Ilea's point of view, Erska. The child seems radiant seems radiant with love. Ilea's hand seems to interwine with Erska's. Close, Ilea and Erska, as the child lies down, cradled in her mother's arms. Their hands continue to move soothingly, as though they had minds of their own. No need to be frightened. You've only felt pain. Why must everyone feel pain? Part of life. Sometimes it is how we understand. Can you make me understand? What is Cryontha? What Cryontha is? Also, for listeners out there, Cryontha, Ben, or C? I don't know. Yeah, who knows? There's no pronunciation guide in the there's this weird runner throughout the series where the word Cryontha keeps popping up and there's kind of like a mystery of like, what is Cryontha? I don't know. Um, all right. What Cryontha is? It is inside your mind. You have to find it. And if I don't, everyone will die. Don't use your mind to find guilt. Direct your mind to discover what Cryontha is. Exterior space, Enterprise, and Cylinder. The Enterprise remains 
in, in, enmeshed in the magenta energy field emanating from the cylinder. Interior bridge. Mr. Chekhov, how much time? Seven minutes, 42 seconds, sir. Kirk punches a button on his chair. Metallurgy, Lieutenant Haber, status report. Um, Jonathan, if you could do the uh, oh. random voices that we see here. <laughs> what, <laughs> whatever the energy field is, sir, it's operating on a subatomic level. I don't see much hope of finding an effective catalyzing agent. Physics lab, Lieutenant Takawa, report. Uh, we oh, have sorry. to... Oh, I'm doing the voice. Oh, wait. <laughs> I'm the James Doohan of this. You are the James Doohan. All right, hang on. We've tried reverse gravity and a battery of magnetic field generators so far. No effects, sir. You're on oh, too. Come on. <laughs> Come on. Talking to myself. Captain, the closest thing to Kryantha that the computer banks contain is... Cryantha, which is a species of animal on Porgath 5. Have you tried mathematical languages? Yes, sir, with similar results. I have, however, also been reviewing the child's thoughts as I knew them when our minds were joined. Point, Mr. Zahn, the point. So I was meant to be Decker. Um, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was to be Decker. Um, me Decker. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, the, the point, Mr. Zahn, the point. I had the distinct impression that each of the calamities that befell the ship was designed to teach the child something about life and death and emotions I could not comprehend. There was a sensation of incompleteness, as though she was still evolving, and these were necessary steps in the process. Cryantha, Mr. Zahn, what is Cryantha? Cryantha is the key to the next stage of her development. Perhaps if I tried another mind meld, I could learn more. Time, Mr. Chekhov. Five minutes and 36 seconds. Let's go, Mr. Zahn. We'll be in Lieutenant Ilea's quarters. You have the con. All right, scene right there. I think because we're running a bit short on time, we'll wrap it up right there. Basically, the rest of the episode, Erska, it's revealed that um, Erska is a physical being, but coming from a non-corporeal physical form, and that the period of time we've seen here is a, a kind of a, a gestation period where like these beings have to live a physical life, understand what it means to exist in a physical plane, and then they can like ascend to their natural state, which is uh, non-corporeal and the white orb things. Um, and Ilea is left with uh, very positive feelings of, of love and joy from the experience. Um, Lisa, I mean, based, you know, picking up on, on something you talked about earlier, really interesting to see kind of Ilea's uh, uh, parenting style too, which I was like, oh, that's actually a really refreshing take on, on this notion of like, you need to figure out how to love and live your own life, you know, rather than just like emanating or emulating your parents' life, which I was like, that's, that's quite interesting. Yeah, she's definitely gearing the the child towards toward becoming independent and her, you know, repeated saying that you know you have to love yourself before you can love anybody else, I think is is a nice message. Absolutely. Um well, guys, I mean, it's uh interesting thing. I wonder if we could talk a bit about the final comparing and contrasting between the the this script and the finished TNG episode. Uh, Jonathan, we talked a bit about it early on before you joined. But if you just want to pick up here with like what, uh, how you compare the two. Well, I think it's fascinating to actually be able to, to compare the two. It, it's not, you know, there can't be many examples of Star Trek scripts that started life as for one crew and ended up, you know, being brought in for another. Um, sure. That was it. Yeah, sorry. That's next um, year's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, but I, I I found this a really interesting one. I found the you know I I I love Star Trek the motion picture. I I think is I think it's a, a much underrated. And to see this crew or or members of this crew you know in their own adventure is is really it's it's a really interesting sidestep um, of what what might have been. And maybe maybe one day in the future we could do you know, audio adventures of all these scripts. We we could play the characters. I love it. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, screams Paramount at the top of their voices. <laughs> you, just, you just really want to use more of that Decker voice. I get it. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think one of the most interesting things for me is that, like, Kirk's role here is, he's not the A story. I mean, Ben, you talked about this a little earlier, how, like, so many of the Phase 2 scripts are, are character, more, more character-specific. Um, but this script is probably best described as an Erska story. Like, she's the one who's taking a lot of the, the active roles, whereas in the TNG episode, 
the Ian character is kind of a, a, a reactive character. He's there. He's inadvertently causing stuff to happen and he's a focal point of a mystery but he's not himself like i think the most he does is he goes and plays with some puppies and that's that's the big thing he does but yeah <laughs> counter picard admits he's never played with puppies which is really sad <laughs> yeah it is, it is sad. <laughs> um but also i love that about him personally <laughs> <laughs> he's I'm just such a for picard season two <laughs> yeah right <laughs> doesn't he have a dog actually he does, he does have, have a dog, dog yes, but he's making yeah. up for lost time I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, fantastic. Um, and an interesting idea for a, uh, a alien species too. It's one that I don't think even now we've currently seen this idea of like uh, the very kind of meta umbrella term of what life is. It's like, oh, this is a cre- not just like, you know, changing physical form as you see with the trill or something like that. It's, it's literally like, oh, you start as a physical thing and then you ascend to becoming an ether. You know, it's like a metamorphosis into a more um, amorphous thing. And that's, it's really interesting how they did that. Yeah, but. that's sort of what happened to Kess in Voyager. Oh, yeah, of course. That's, that's a great point. It's a great point. It's a big, I mean, Star Trek's always been fond of little balls of light that were once people. Um, <laughs> They're very cheap to do. So. Yeah, well, they were, they were yeah, quite achievable in 1968. I mean, to me, I, I still think going back to what I said before, it, you know, Maury Hurley wrote the script. He said he didn't, the, the, the TNG one, he said that he didn't read the original script. Mm. Um, it's weird because I've never seen a treatment for it. So, I mean, I guess there might be one out there, but maybe Burton Armas, who was the story editor at the time, Maury's right-hand man, just wrote him some coverage and he rewrote it based on that. But, you know, it, the, the TNG one feels rushed to me. Um, you know, they were at the beginning of the season. They literally were not supposed to be writing anything. I don't think Murray really cared about that. He was complaining about the writers not breaking the strike so that he could give him six scripts on the day one. Um, but it's like, you know, it's like Jonathan said, this is not what you expect the first episode of your, you know, second blockbuster season to be. Um it's it's a kind of messy episode. It's It's got lots of different threads and none of them really contribute to the script. I mean, the Jeopardy is quite kind of an afterthought mm-hmm. in the TNG episode, whereas here it is, it's inherent into the story. Right from the word go, it's like this strange, mysterious metal cylinder starts following them and messing them out with the ship and trying to kill them. Um, however much you don't believe they're going to die, you know. Um, <laughs> But that's, you know, you still had to have the Jeopardy and I'm sure they could probably have added a few dead red shirts to this to, to up the up the ante. Just have Verska kill some people. It's fine. It's, 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 it's. <laughs> <laughs> um, Interestingly enough, I mean, neither of the mothers really changes much during the episode. I mean, this, this what is actually a life-changing experience really doesn't seem to affect either one of them very much. I mean, Ilea at the end is just as happy to see the kid go as she was to get pregnant by some mysterious light ball. Um, And, you know, Deanna, you know, mourns a little bit more when, when her child goes, but we don't really see her struggling to be a mother or, or trying to deal with this kid that's growing so fast. I mean, we don't really see her very active. For me, that that with the TNG episode is a real failing to it. Is that she just like she has so few scenes with Ian? Mm-hmm. She she's got like three scenes or something with you know yeah, for this quick, this yeah. thing, and it's like oh I had a child oh now he's gone oh dear I'm very sad <laughs> this is this is difficult and and it has that kind of um, you know 1980s storytelling of like you know Mr Burns we will never mention this again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but I, I, and you could almost feel, um, Rob Bowman, who directed the child, uh, seemed to be trying to inject a bit of that into the visuals, how at the very beginning they do that like long, uh, uh, uh kind of introspective moment of Troy looking at the image of, of the child in, in the womb, which is clearly taken from a PBS documentary and, <laughs> um, just sort of like introspecting there and being, and, you know, you hear the heartbeats and, and for a minute you're like, oh no, she's going to get rid of this child. She's viewing this as an intrusion, um, which is a fair assumption, a fair, uh, a totally understandable thing to think. But then she's like, no, I'm going to keep this baby. And then at the end, when she's crying about it, it's like, okay, there's a bit of an arc there. You could, you could read into it if you wanted to, but I agree. It probably wasn't in the script at all. And like, um, and uh, in, in this one, as, as Lisa was talking about, it's like Ilea's 
kind of almost lethargic through the whole thing. She's just like, yeah, it's happening. Here we are. She's pretty zen about it. She's She's very kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, my child will be dead soon, but let me just, you know, I'll get through anxiety. That was something I wanted to bring up too. They they do mention in this script the fact that... um, Erska McCoy sets it up early on that like Erska probably only has a week to live. Like she is aging yeah. too quickly. Her white blood cell count is through the roof. She will be dead soon. And then that storyline goes nowhere. The white blood cells save them. That's the vaccine. The, the, uh, yes, yes, yes. But the whole like accelerated aging thing. Yeah. It's just like it caps at 10 mm-hmm. years old and that's it. And then what's interesting about the TNG storyline is that that is kind of a running um Continued point of mystery is that like this child is aging before our eyes and we just don't understand how this is happening. It's it's just occurred to me that they might have got Jodie Foster to play this role. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. They do set up that the child has yeah. hair. Which, uh, yeah, she's, yes. You know. <laughs> there are more things in common with Jodie Foster than having hair. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> obviously, Jodie Foster was not going to shave her head even in 1975, no. 1976. No. But I mean, that, you know, that casting is such a big thing. There's also a thing about how Oscar could be like, there are moments when she seems a bit scary. Yes. You know, there are little mentions in the script about you're not quite sure whether she knows what's going on or not. Um, and you can imagine it having that kind of unsettling kind of alien child thing going yeah. for her. I was, I was definitely reading a lot of The Omen early on when, yeah. <laughs> when I was reading it. And- that's why I tried to go for the creepy voice early, but it didn't work. <laughs> but uh, but it, it does, uh, you know, it's, it's such a product of its time too, this notion. It's like demon children. It was, it was all over the place, you know. start wrapping up. We do, yes. It's about yeah. that time. Um, uh, but yeah, um, so final, I guess we'll, let's just do a vote here. Um, uh, final uh, assessment of the episode. Like, do you vote uh, Phase Two is the better child or TNG is the better version of the child? Uh, ben, let's start with you. Oh, Phase Two for me. All right, Phase Two, Jonathan. Well, Phase Two, but it is a crime we were denied the sight of William Shatner in his swimming trunks with his uh, towels <laughs> of wet hair. I mean, <laughs> took on a challenge for the makeup department there, but uh, yes, uh, yeah, definitely like Phase Two. I think I like the phase two version better just because the the child is a little more active and and sort of becomes interesting as a character herself. Yeah, it's uh, I wonder how long the script, the episode would have been because there's so much happening here. And what struck me with the TNG episode was like the script, I imagine, was pretty lean and mean. And then they fill it out with visuals. And here it's like there's lots of things happening. And I'm like, oh, this maybe this would have been a healthy uh 90-minute cuts. But for me, I, I'm going to be a contrarian here and vote for TNG just because oh, I, no love, oh. I, I love Guinan. I love the Pulaski scenes. I think they are great. And TNG is my enterprise. And I just love seeing those characters anytime, anyplace. Um, just to throw some love to Pulaski, who doesn't get enough love in the world. (laughs) um, So we do need to wrap things up here. Um, Obviously, we want to thank the Virtual Trek Con for for hosting us, um, a fantastic uh, organization. And we'll be uh, posting this episode as well on our own uh, uh, podcast feed, which is uh, the Trexperts Briefing Room podcast. Um, You can find us on Twitter at TrexpertsBR or at the Trexperts Briefing Room on Instagram. Um, Ben, Jonathan, uh, you guys want to plug uh, your own stuff? Um, Ben, let's start with you. Oh, we make all these ships. Um, <laughs> anybody listening to this doesn't know we make all these ships. Um, I'd be wasting my time. And books, actually. I've been really, I mean, um, Peter knows we were very kind of come on. We did the original series celebration book. It's been probably the thing I've been proudest of in the last six months, year. How long it's been. That, that was a big deal for me. And it's a fantastic book. And it's um, if you think you've, you've you've read all the Star Trek books you need to read, uh, you're wrong. And you need to uh, <laughs> you need to go check out this book too. There's a lot of fascinating um, behind the scenes images and stories about um, the people and and the the, the situations that, that you maybe haven't heard of that aren't the uh, aren't the uh, common stories that are told at at all the Star Trek conventions. So it's uh, it's worth picking up. Again, that's Star Trek: A Celebration. 
um, available everywhere. Beautiful hardcover copy. Um, Jonathan, to you. Uh, well, we've got Star Trek Explorer magazine, which is ongoing, which has got, um, obviously, the highlight of every issue is uh, the wonderful fiction, uh, particularly the one stories written by uh, our lovely Lisa here, who has just written some fantastic stories for us. Um, that air so much better than the child. Um, and uh, and um, uh, if that's not enough, we have got, uh, well, it's a long way away, it's in June, we have the uh, Star, Ball, uh, Star Wars, <gasps> Star Wars, Star Wars, <laughs> I normally edit a Star Wars magazine, I got confused, um, Star Trek, ignore that, right, delete, delete. Um, <laughs> we've got the uh, Star Trek uh, Genesis Trilogy uh, special, which is, um, a compilation of uh, interviews and articles about Star Trek 2 through to 4, which I don't think has ever been done in uh, book form, which is I'm particularly proud of because that, that's kind of my trek. That's my stuff there. So, yeah, wow, that's, so look out that's, for that. That's fascinating. So where, where can we get Titan uh, Star Trek Explorer magazine? Star Trek Explorer magazine um, from Titan Magazine's website. You can find it on newsstands if there are things at newsstands anymore. I'm pretty sure there They're might not. be a couple around. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, generally from uh, Titan, uh, the Titan website, titanmagazines.com. Fantastic. Um, so again, for uh, for us here, thank you so much for joining us. Please uh, find us on uh, your podcast feed. Give us a subscribe. Uh, send us a positive rating, um, and you can find us on social medias <laughs> where we uh, where we post behind the scenes pictures of uh, Star Trek productions, as well as talk to you about our upcoming podcasts, which we have some fantastic guests coming on too. We tend to focus in on getting writers or, or creatives who uh, worked on Star Trek or the diehard fans who have then made their own careers of, of talking about Star Trek, uh, like like Ben. And Jonathan here. Um, always a good time, and uh, we, we have fun. Um, and so, uh, Virtual TrekCon people, thank you so much again. Obviously, want to thank uh, Anne-Marie Siegel and um, uh, Ryan here, who's uh, emceeing this whole thing. Uh, fantastic times. Um, so, for us here, Lisa and myself, I want to say thank you again for joining us. And until next time, the briefing room is now closed. Scott, would you repeat what you just told us? About an hour ago, the bridge control started going crazy. Levers shifting by themselves, buttons being pushed, instrument readings changing. And on my monitor screen, I can see Mitchell smiling each time it happened, as if his ship and crew were almost a toy for his amusement. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.